So good evening. We are here for class number eight of the Hidden Miracle series. This is the final class. As, as was mentioned, next Wednesday night will be Purim. And then we'll be moving on from the to topic of the Megillah. I hope that this year we will be more prepared than ever when we go to hear the Megillah. We will know the story. We will know the ins and outs. And uh, hopefully it will be an even more meaningful experience. So we have a quite a few verses left to read. We are not going to read every single verse, but we'll get the just of the, the just of the story line, and uh, and we're gonna hopefully close with an incredible idea. So you'll have to stick around till the end. Um, so let's just uh, remind ourselves where we are right now. So. Haman is gone. Haman is out of the picture. Haman has been eliminated. And, uh, and things are looking good, except that there's still a decree that's out against the Jewish people that on the 13th of Adar, the Persians are to rise up and eliminate them, annihilate them. And that still hangs over their heads. And Esther, although she had mentioned this, she had told this to Ahasuerush when she revealed her identity and accused Haman. Nothing has happened yet. Nothing has been done about that. And so we read the final verses we read last week. She comes to Ahasuerush and she falls before him crying and pleading. And she makes a suggestion to him. The suggestion is Esther is aware that there's a, of the law in Persia that a decree that's gone out from the king cannot be rescinded. She's aware of that. So he can't call, he can't cancel the decree. But Esther says, actually, I think you can in this case, because this is a little bit different. First of all, if we go with the commentaries that Haman tricked Ahasuerus, so she says, this wasn't really your decree. If you call back the decree, it's not canceling a decree that came forth from the king. It didn't come from the king. And secondly, secondly, if uh, the other idea, which we'll have to get into again, there are two ways to understand what happened. One is that Haman and Ahasuerus were completely in cahoots. Ahasuerus knew exactly what was going on. And there was no secrecy about the decree. Everybody got the letters. It was very clear what was in the letters. It said annihilate the Jews on the 13th of Adar, and it was all open and known to everyone. That was one way to understand. The other way that many commentaries understand is that actually it never said in the letters that went to all the citizens what was going to happen exactly on the 13th of Adar. It said, get ready. You should be ready for this day. There's going to be a nation that we're going to attack. But it didn't identify who. And there was a separate letter that went out to the governors. And either in that letter, the governors were notified who that nation was, or even that, according to the Malbim, it was a sealed letter to be opened on the 13th of Adar to identify who the people were. Word got out, rumors, Mordechai found out through prophecy, the word got out, but it was never actually stated explicitly in those letters. So according to that, Esther says, if you pull back those letters that identify who the people are that are to be wiped out, you're not canceling anything. They don't, it never was announced. It was never announced that the Jewish people are the ones to be destroyed. Ahasuerus call back those letters. But Ahasuerus says that he cannot do that. Once a decree has gone out in the name of the king, it can't be called back. <clears throat> However, he's not, uh, he's not just leaving her out to dry. Ahasuerus has his own, his own plan, his own strategy for how to deal with this. So that's where we pick up. We're in chapter 8, verse 7. If you have the source sheet this week, I only had time to just put the verses on. So, uh, so it's just straight verses. You can also read them from the Megillah if you have one. So chapter 8, verse 7, it says, <clears throat> Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Morachai the Jew, Behold, the house of Haman I have given to Esther, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he laid a hand on the Jews. And you write about the Jews as you see fit, the name in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring for a writ that is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring. 
cannot be rescinded. What is Achashverosh telling her? So remember, some time has passed, or possibly, and Achashverosh hasn't done anything yet. Esther is very nervous. He's given her the house of Haman, and she thinks maybe he gave that to me instead. He's not going to honor my wish to rescind the decree. That's why she comes to him broken and crying and, and, and pleading. So Achashverosh says that, behold, the house of Haman I've given to Esther, and they have hanged him on the gallows, not because I was just trying to appease you and I'm not going to take care of you, not because he was going to hang, hang Mordechai, who saved my life, but I'll tell you why I did it. And this is what I'm going to publicize, because he laid a hand on the Jews. That's why I'm doing it. And what Achashverosh is telling Esther is, I am already starting to take care of your problem because I'm first making a, a, a symbol out of Haman. I'm teaching everyone a lesson. This is what happens to someone who tries to lay a hand on the Jews. I, he's hung, his property's taken away, and he's an example for everyone. So be careful when messing with the Jews. That's the first message. Now, still, there's a letter out there. There's a decree out there that says that the Jews can be annihilated. So what's he going to do about that? So again, we have to come back to our two, two ways of understanding the story. If there, it's an open letter, everybody knows it's the Jewish people. So then it's pretty straightforward. He's going to send out a letter that says that the Jewish people have the right to defend themselves. And that's basically the whole story. They're going to get up on that day to defend themselves. They'll be supported by the Persian troops, the tr Persian army, and, or at least the Persian army is not going to be attacking them. And also people will be scared of the Jews by now. Mordechai will be powerful. And that's going to be pretty straightforward. They'll just put out a new decree that contradicts the first one. One decree says, or it doesn't even contradict. The first decree says that you should try to annihilate the Jews and that he can't rescind. The second decree will say the Jews will be able to defend themselves. And again, I think the deeper meaning of that, if that is the Persian army won't, won't be intervening. That's one way. Now, if we understand like the Malbim though, that there's really, there's two letters. There's a letter that everybody in the, in the, in the um, kingdom received announcements that went out to everyone that just say, be ready for this day. They don't identify who it is that's going to be attacked. And then there are sealed letters that the governors have that they're supposed to open on the 13th of Adar. Now, even so, there's obviously been a leak, right? The word has gotten out that it's the Jewish people. And that's part of Esther's concern is if we don't do anything now, they're already, you know, anti-Semitic attacks are on the rise already. And uh, we have to, we have to intervene. So to that, Achashverosh tells her, don't worry. I've given the house of Haman to you and I've hung him because he's put his, extended his hand against the Jews. So I'm first showing people, you know, don't, uh, don't attack the Jews. Don't mess with the Jews because I'm making an example of Haman. You see what happens. But what about these letters? So there's two ideas that Achashverosh is saying about the letters here. And actually, I think if we read, let's read ahead a little bit before we come back to see what these letters that he's going to send or have Mordechai send actually say. So it says in verse nine, and the king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, that is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day thereof, and it was written according to all that Mordechai commanded to the Jews and to the satraps, those are these governors and the governors, and the princes of the provinces from Hodu to Kush, 127 provinces, every province according to its script and every nationality according to its tongue, and to the Jews according to their script and according to their tongue. So they, they're sending out new decrees, new letters to every part of the kingdom when in the third month, that is the month of Sivan on the 23rd day thereof. So let's just pause and consider that for a second. So it's the 23rd of Sivan now. So I think last week I had said, based on Manos Halevi's understanding, that actually this whole episode occurs on the 23rd. There was a, a break. Basically, Esther was waiting to see if Ahasuerus would do anything. And uh, 
because we had left off originally on like the 17th um, or the, the, the 16th of Nissan, which is almost two months prior, uh, more than two months prior, sorry, two months and, and a week or so. So what happening all that time? So she was waiting. And when she saw nothing was happening, then she went and pleaded with him. Others understand, no, she pleaded with him right away. She didn't wait. She saw he wasn't doing, he wasn't acting on it. He gave her the house. He got ner- she got nervous. He's not going to do anything for the Jewish people. She went and pleaded with him right away that he also has to intervene on behalf of the Jewish people. They waited, however, to send out the messengers. Why did they wait to send out the messengers? Well, the messengers had just been sent out to, for Haman's decree. Haman's decree hadn't gone out that long ago. It had just gone out on the 13th of Nisan. And then it was the 17th. It was four days later. So, or 16th. It was just a few days later. So they couldn't just send out the messengers. The messengers had already gone out. They had to wait for them to come back to send them again. Now, they could have sent different messengers. They specifically wanted to send the same ones because first of all, it could be those were like the respected messengers or people who listened to. But secondly, if it was the same ones, then it would be more believable when they say, actually, this is the new decree. If it was different ones, then people would just be very confused. What happened? You know, there's two different ones. Who do we trust? I think we'll trust the first ones over the second ones. But if it was the same ones coming again, then they would be more trustworthy. So they waited till the 23rd of Sivan, the third month, until they were back and able to go back out again, and then they sent them. And then it tells us what he wrote. Verse 10, and he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's ring. And he sent letters by the couriers on horseback, the riders of the king's steeds, the camels, bread of the dromedaries, okay? That the king had given to the Jews. So here is what it's going to say. This is what the decree, the new letter, the new proclamation will say, that the king has given to the Jews who are in every city, <coughs> the right to assemble and to protect themselves, to destroy, to slay, and to cause to perish the entire host of every people and province that oppressed them, small children and women, and to take their spoils for plunder. In one day, in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So this decree sounds very similar to the decree that Haman had issued. That also said, just to say about the Jewish people, it said, to exactly these words, in the Hebrew, to destroy, to slay, to cause, to perish, and to take the spoils. Well, of course it said the same thing because it has to say the same thing because this is explaining the original decree. What Ahasuerus is doing, the original decree said in those sealed letters, it said, that on the 13th of Adar, you're going to, to destroy, slay, and cause to perish. Who? The Jewish people. So Ahasuerus says what we're going to do is we're going to send a new letter, and it's going to be the same thing, but we're going to say that when it said slay, cause to perish the Jewish people, it was really saying the Jewish people will slay, cause to perish. That it's going to, to sort of reword it to, to, to say it didn't mean slay and destroy the Jewish people. It meant the Jewish people will slay and destroy their enemies. That's how you're supposed to read that original decree. Now, that was one thing that he was going to do. Now, that could be a bit of a stretch to, to do that. And it's in many different languages. It may not always fit into all the different languages. So he, he was going to do something else at the same time. Um, and that is that at the end of the day, whether people would understand it as a reinterpretation of the original decree or just a new decree, and you have sort of contradictory decrees, well, which one would they accept? The original one that says destroy the Jews or the one that's the issue now, which says the Jews are the ones to destroy their enemies. So two things, first of all, All the peasants, all the regular people, it doesn't say, they don't have a letter that says who to destroy. They just have a letter that says, on this day, there's going to be someone that's going to be destroyed. So they won't necessarily ever see 
the letter that says that the Jewish people are the ones to be destroyed, only if that gets released by the governors, which is an, an if. Now the governors are going to receive a letter, a second letter. They're basically going to have two letters. They're going to have a letter that says to destroy the Jewish people. When they open it, it will say destroy the Jewish people on the 13th of Adar. And then they'll have another letter that says the Jewish people are supposed to destroy their enemies. That that could be understood as an, as an explanation of the first one. You know, you're reading it wrong. It really is supposed to say the Jewish people are to destroy their enemies. But even if they don't understand it that way, so now they have two different letters. Well, which one are they going to accept? So they might just accept the second one because it came later, or they might accept it because they see that the, you know, Mordechai, the Jewish people have gained much power, as is stressed in the verses, as we'll see in a moment, that uh, Mordechai had become very respected. And, uh, and that's what Achashverosh is saying. You know, I gave Mordechai the house of Haman and, and I punished Haman for messing with the Jews. So when these governors get this letter and they could either read it as mess with the Jews or don't mess with the Jews. So there's great um, incentive now to, um, to, to accept the one that says don't mess with the Jews because we see what has befallen Haman um, for, for doing so. So... This was basically um, Achashverosh's plan. There would be a second letter that's sent out. It's not necessarily a contradiction because he can't contradict what he said previously. No, it's a reinterpretation. But if you understand it as a contradiction, it's going to be okay anyways, because most of the officers will, in the end, accept the second letter. Um, additionally, the, the second letter would be sent to people that the first one wasn't sent to. And I also proves more that the second letter is the main one, the first one, the first decree is was a mistake or is to be reinterpreted. And this is basically Achashverosh's plan. Um, fine. So verse, okay, so we already explained why they waited. What else do we want to point out here? Um, oh, so right. So back to the language for a second. So in the language, I mentioned that it still says to destroy, to slay, and to constipate. Now there's no choice here because he can't rescind the first decree. That's the law. You can't rescind a decree. So the best he can do, right? It would be so nice if we would just all go away, right? Why, why do we need killing? Why do we need murder? Just cancel the whole thing. But we, that's not an option here because the first decree says to um, slay, to destroy, slay, and cause to perish. So the only choice here is to reinterpret that, to mean that the Jews will be able to have the opportunity to slay their enemies. Additionally, it says that they'd be able to take their spoils for plunder. And then it says in verse 12, in one day, in all the provinces of the king of Ahasuerus. So the, the commentaries, Malbim, Yosef, Lekach, point out the implication here is that they will have one day to both kill their enemies and take the spoils. Now they note that when Haman sent out the original decree, it wasn't exactly worded that way. This is a rewording. When Haman said it, he, would, he said they should kill their enemies, which will be the Jews. And then, the, and on the next day, they will get the spoils. So the reason why Haman wrote it that way was because on the day of killing the enemies, Haman wanted them focused on killing the Jews. No taking spoils today. You'll wait till tomorrow. On day one, we kill the Jews. On day two, we could collect the spoils. That was Haman's intent. But, but Mordechai, in again, sending a reinterpretation, sending to the Jews, he wasn't really interested in the spoils. He didn't want the Jews to take spoils, and they didn't take spoils. The verses say explicitly they didn't take anything from their enemies. Um, but he, but he didn't have a choice. He had to use the same words that Haman used or along the same lines that they would be taking spoils, but he said that it should happen in one day. And, uh, and this was a way of basically telling the Jews that, you know, we're not taking spoils. You're going to be focused on defending yourselves against your enemies. And we're not going to take spoils because I'm only giving you one day to do it all. And you're not going to have time to take spoils. This was his way um, 
of telling them that. And this way also they would focus on their task at hand, which was to destroy their enemies. Um, additionally, this was also a way to bring some other Gentile Persians to assist them against whoever rose up against the Jews. Because if they knew that they would be able to collect spoils at the same time, then they might join in the, in the fighting. So he was this way able to draw in some, uh, some Persians to help in fighting against the Jewish enemies. Okay, so verse 13, the copy of the writ was that an edict be given in every province published before all the peoples and that the Jew be ready for that day to avenge themselves upon their enemies. The couriers, those who ride the king's steeds, the camels went out, hastened and pressed by the king's order and the edict was given in Shushan the capital. And Mordechai left the king's presence with royal raiment garments, blue and white and a huge golden crown and the wrap of linen and purple and the city of Shushan shouting and rejoiced. So again, Mordechai has been, is honored now. He's of high position. He has very royal garments and the people of Shushan, they see this, they see that that the Mordechai is very respected. They see that things are turning around for the Jewish people and they rejoice. Famous verse, verse 16, the Jews have light and joy and gladness and honor. And there's a lot to say about that, but we're not going to go into that now. And verse 17, and in every province and in every city, wherever the king's ordering his edict reached, there was joy and gladness for the Jews, a banquet and a festive day. And many of the peoples of the land became Jews because the fear of the Jews was upon them. So actually in the Hebrew, this verse says that many of the, of the people of the land, misyahadim. So here they translate that as became Jews. The Vilna Gong actually says they did not become Jews. Um, they, but as he says, they didn't, they weren't actual converts because they were just doing it to, because they were scared. They, 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 they saw that the Jewish people were powerful now, but, uh, but they made themselves like Jews. They started to behave like Jews. It's funny and kind of ironic, right? Originally the Jews went to the party. They wanted to fit in with the Gentiles. And now the Gentiles are trying to fit in with the Jews. So that's just uh, an interesting, another turn of events. And that's the end of chapter eight. And so chapter nine now is a fast forward. So everything is set. The, the, these letters have gone out. Just to, to mention once again, there had been this fear of anti-Semitic attacks that would be carried out throughout the time leading up to the 13th of Adar. But because the Jewish people have risen in power to such an extent and Ahasuerus hung Haman for extending his hand against the people. So that puts to rest mainly that, that concern, that was one of Esther's concerns and the, the Jews are protected as a result of, of that. And as a result of this decree that went out that says that the Jews will be able to defend themselves on that day. So chapter nine, now fast forward to that day. And it says in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar on the 13th day thereof. So the 13th day of Adar, the day that Haman had determined would be the day that the Jewish people are annihilated. When the king's order and his edict drew near to be put into execution on the day that the Jews' enemies looked forward to ruling over them, this was the day that the enemies thought would be the day that they annihilate the Jews. It was reversed. The verse says everything was switched around. The Jews should rule over their enemies. And what happens? The Jews assembled in their cities and all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hand on those who sought to harm them. And no one stood up before them for their fear, fear had fallen upon all the peoples. And all the princes of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and those that conduct the king's affairs elevated the Jews for the fear of Mordechai fell upon them. So that's something that we mentioned. There's fear of the power of the Jewish people. Mordechai is in a very um, influential position now in the, in the palace. And and nobody's rising up against them, or almost nobody. For Mordechai was great in the king's house, and his fame went forth throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordechai waxed greater and greater. And verse 5, and the Jews smote all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, and with slaying and destruction, 
and they did to their enemies as they wished. So pause there for a second. So this is finally the day, the 13th of Adar. There's conflicting decrees. There's a decree that's out that says that the enemies can attack the Jewish people. There's a decree that says that the Jewish people can defend themselves against their enemies. So, and there's this overarching fear of the Jewish people at the same time, which is basically going to limit the, the action. It's going to limit who is actually going to rise up against the Jews, who is going to be involved in the fighting, because a lot of people already in the end of the previous chapter, we said a lot of them became Jews or, became, or, or joined the Jews already in advance. And now it's the day of the fighting. So there's not going to be that, you know, relatively speaking, that much of a, uh, that large of a group, nothing near what it would have been had all this not happened, uh, who rise up to fight the Jews. Um, so, so the verse, going back to verse one here, chapter nine, so it says there, the edict drew near to be put into execution, right? Meaning the day, it was the day to act. And there's a decree from the king that you have to act. So you either have to get up and attack the Jews or you have to get up and attack the enemies, the Jews. So everybody is kind of called to arms here and, uh, and you have to pick a side. Um, there's no, uh, these are, this is the, the edict of the king. There's no backing down. There's no compromise. So what happens, as verse 2 says, the Jews get assembled. They gathered in their cities. So specifically cities. So in the cities, fortified cities, that's where you have the officers. That's where you have the soldiers. And they were there to protect the Jews and, and to assist them against any enemies that would get up against them. And therefore, it says that they gathered there in the, in, the, in the cities, in all the provinces of the king of Ahasuerus. And that's where it says no one stood up before them. That was you know, not a time to, nobody wanted to fight them in those situations. They had plenty of help in the, in the cities. Um, and as it says in verse three, and all the princes of the provinces and the governors elevated the Jews for the fear of Mordechai fell upon them. They knew about the sealed documents. These were the officers. They knew there were two sealed documents. They knew one said, destroy the Jews. And they knew that one said that the Jews should destroy their enemies. Um, and on the one hand, they could have said, I'm not afraid of the Jews. I know that there's a decree for me to destroy the Jews. I have that, you know, the letter right here. I, can, I have the right to get up and, and attack Jews. They might have said that, but, um, and they could have helped the, Jew, the enemies of the Jews, but they didn't do that. Rather, they elevated the Jews. They helped the Jews against their enemies. And again, that was because, as the verse says, because the fear of Mordechai fell upon them. They are, we're talking about officers, governors, they recognize somebody who's in a high position of power and his fear is upon them. And therefore they do not involve themselves in, they do not join the enemy, rather they, if anything, assist the Jews in their fight. And, uh, and in verse five, we have where the, it says the Jews actually smote all their enemies with the stroke of the swords. This is what they had given, been given permission to do. They can't, it's not just that they could kill anyone, but they can kill their enemies. So what's, what's an enemy? So the, the Malbim understands that they were given the right to go after anybody that was known as a Jew hater. Anyone that was known as a Jew hater, they could, they could go after. Others understand that, that it was whoever would get up to fight them, that's who they would fight back. Whoever would rise against them. And remember, at this point, there's so much fear of the Jews. In order for someone to rise up against the Jews, it would have to be that they really, really hated the Jews and would almost be suicidal to rise up against the Jews. And that's, and it was, and that's who would be getting up to fight them. And that's who they would be fighting against. And that's an idea I want to come back to a little bit later. Um, 
verse 6, and in Shushan, the capital, the Jews slew and destroyed 500 men. So they killed 500 men in Shushan, and then it lists off the, the 10 sons of Haman, who were also killed. Parshandasa, Dalfon, Aspasa, Parasa, Adalia, Aridasa, Parmashta, Arisa, Arida, and Baizasa. The 10 sons of Haman, the son of Amdasa, the adversary of the Jews, they slew, but on the spoil, they did not lay their hands. As we mentioned, the Jews did not go after the spoils. That's not what it was about. It was about defending themselves against their enemies. Um, the Yosef Lekach has an interesting idea over here. Well, we actually know that these sons of Haman, after that, were hung, even though they were already dead, to make an example of them. Um, but he, he writes that, that in general, in, that, in those times when, they, when you had a war, when you killed the enemy, you kind of defiled, mutilated the body so that you wouldn't know who it was that was killed, except if that person was a person of high position, a king, a prince, a, an officer, then you wanted people to see that you had killed that person. It would lower the morale of the enemy, etc. cetera. And, uh, and that's what they did over here. That's what the, the verse is telling us here, that it says they slew and destroyed 500 men. So in verse six, what they, they killed, they obeyed and they, they, they destroyed, I meaning they got rid of the bodies, they destroyed the bodies. But for the 10 sons of Haman, they didn't do that. The 10 sons of Haman were an example. They, they, they did not want to, they wanted people, people to be able to see that they had killed them. And so for them, it just says they slew them. It doesn't say that they destroyed them. They didn't, they didn't do anything to the bodies. And in the end, they end up hanging them to make an example of them. Um, okay, and then it continues on. On that day, the number of those slain in Shushan, the capital, came before the king. The king said to Queen Esther, they killed 500 in Shushan and the 10 sons of Haman. How many were killed elsewhere? And in the end, many, many are killed in the other provinces. Remember, there's 127 provinces. Shushan is just one city. And they end up killing many, many of their enemies. So we're not going to read through all the verses. There's actually more verses than this. There's another, there's more verses in chapter nine, which I left off, which talk about the establishment of the holiday of Purim, which is a whole topic in itself. I want to, at this point, take a pause in the story. I want to save, actually, I want to jump ahead to chapter 10, share some thoughts about chapter 10, and then, uh, then take a pause and then share one more closing idea. So, uh, so chapter 10 is a very strange chapter. They've killed their enemies. They've, uh, they've celebrated. They've made a holiday. And then this is how the Megillah closes. The climax of the Megillah, three verses. That's all chapter 10 is. Verse 1 of chapter 3. And King Ahasuerus imposed a tax on the land and on the isles of the sea. What? an insignificant, strange piece of information to share at the climax, the closing thoughts of the Megillah. Ahasuerus imposed a tax on the land and on the sides, isles of the sea. And then it comes back and says, and all the acts of his power and his might and the full account of Mordecai's greatness, how the king advanced him, are they, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Medea and Persia. If you want just information history, go to the Chronicles of Medea and Persia. This book is not a history book, the Megillah. This is a work of divine inspiration. If you want just the history, everything here is calculated. Everything here is for a reason. If you just want history, go to the uh, Chronicles of the Kings of Medea and Persia. For Mordechai, the Jew was viceroy to King Ahasuerus, great among the Jews, accepted by most of his brethren, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all their seed. Okay, beautiful ending to the, to the Megillah. But what's this? first verse doing here. Why, why is that significant? How does that lend itself to the story, to the miracle, the fact that King Ahasuerus imposed a tax on the land and on all, all the isles of the sea? It just seems irrelevant or unimportant. That, that should be in the, the, you know, the next verse refers to the Chronicles, the kings of Medea and Persia. That's where something like that belongs. And yet we know if you don't read every verse in the Megillah, you haven't fulfilled the obligation. So this, this verse is important to the story. It's important to the miracle. So I will offer three explanations. Explanation number one, why was it important that he imposed a tax? Because the, 
the sages actually tell us, the Talmud says, that Achashverosh made the people pretty poor at that point from this tax. And that is because, or the, the reason why this was important was if they were, if the people weren't paying this, this extra tax and they were living more comfortably, they have a lot more time on their hands. When you have time on your hands, you talk, you gossip, you spread the news, you talk about who's who, who's successful, who are we, who should we be jealous of? And there would be a fallout against the Jewish people who had risen in position. They talk about Mordechai, they talk about Esther, they talk about what the Jews had done to their enemies. This way they were distracted from that. As the, the, the aftermath of the story is, they were very distracted. They were poor, they were spending time earning money, they had to focus on, on, uh, on, on, on earning more money. And they didn't have time for, for gossip and such that would remind them, alert them to the success that the Jews had in battle. They kind of had to shift gears into a new problem that had come upon them. That's one explanation that's offered by the Shir Ma'on. Alternatively, the Yosef Lekach, he says, this isn't the first time we've heard about attacks in the Megillah. You may remember that after Ahasuerus appoints Esther as queen, he really wants to know what her identity, she won't reveal it. He tries a few things to please her. One of the things that he did was he, the verse says, he made a tax break on all the provinces. So, and this was a way of, he did it in her name. It was in her honor. He gave a tax break. Now, is that significant to the story that he, besides for that, he was trying to find out her identity. Did that have any impact on what happened? The fact that there, fact that there was a tax break? So the Yosef Lekach says as follows. He says, when Achashverosh gave a tax break to all the provinces, it was for everyone except for the Jews. Achashverosh was no fan of the Jews. He did not give a tax break to the Jews. And therefore, when Haman came to try to destroy the Jews, to get permission to annihilate the Jews, he said, there's a nation that they're not worth anything to you, right? Well, they might pay taxes, but don't worry. I am going to give you 10,000 silvers. Haman was a very wealthy man. He was able to pay. He had the money to offer the king to be able to destroy the enemy, the Jews, because he would make up for their tax dollars. However, when Mordechai came to, Ach when Mordechai and Esther come to Achashverosh, and they want to be able to destroy their enemies, they don't have as much money as Haman. They can't offer Achashverosh. Don't worry, you won't lose out on the taxes because from, of these enemies of ours, because we'll pay you. They didn't have the money to pay. So how could they, how could they come to the king? They couldn't make the same offer that Haman could. The answer says the Yosef Lekach was they didn't need to because they weren't, the enemy wasn't paying taxes because Ahasuerus had given a tax break and that tax break was still going. Since Esther had become queen and he had taken away the taxes, those enemies weren't paying taxes. And so he, and Esther didn't have to offer Ahasuerus money to replace that tax money. And now the Megillah comes and says that Ahasuerus put the tax back on. Why is it telling us that? It's not important that there was now a new tax. But what it's telling you is now that the miracle has happened, everything has played out, the tax went back because it wasn't necessary for it to be, to, for this tax break to exist anymore. Meaning it wasn't necessary for the miracle anymore. So the Megillah is telling us that things were changed so that the Jewish people can experience salvation. And now things went back to normal. That's what the Megillah is highlighting for you by telling us that Ahasuerus put a tax. It's highlighting that there was this miraculous thing this whole time that there were no taxes on the, on the people. And that way when Ahasuerus, excuse me, when Mordechai wanted to, to get permission to wipe out their enemies, he didn't have to offer any money because there was no tax money to make up for. Now that... We're past that. Now that the enemy has been wiped out, now that the miracle has occurred, 
things went back to normal. That's what the Megillah is pointing out to us. A beautiful idea. And there's a third idea, but uh, I'm going to save it for the end. So, uh, so now what I want to do is we've reached the end of the Megillah. And, uh, uh, I'm sorry yeah. to bother you. Please, Can you no, you're repeat? not bothering me. Thank you. Can you please repeat the first? So uh, the first uh, answer option, yeah. Yeah. So the first answer was that because Achashverosh imposed a new tax on the people, they were now much poorer and very distracted by their need to earn more money, and they didn't have time to gossip and slander and talk about the Jews and how the Jews had killed so many people and this and that, and that was. Uh, a way, another way of protecting the Jews after, in the aftermath. Because if they were living comfortably and bored, so then they would spend more time talking about who was in power, who was, you know, and, and it, the jealousy would, uh, would rise. Now, I, 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 you could really argue the other way, perhaps that when they are suffering, they're going to focus more on the jealousy. But this is how the Shirma On says it, that because they were, they were too preoccupied, they were dealing with new problems, they couldn't think about the problem that... Uh, you know, that the Jewish people had risen to power and that they had killed so many enemies, etc. That's, that's, that's what the tax did. It was, protect, it was protecting the Jews in the aftermath of the whole Purim story. Thank you. Sure, thank you. Okay, so what I want to do now is just a quick summary of the Purim story. Now that we've learned so much, we've learned, as we noted in the first class, there are certain key moments in the Megillah that stand out and we can identify that these are the key moments. These are the greatest parts of the miracle. Vashti gets deposed. Esther is crowned as queen. Mordechai saves the king. Um, you know, Esther is able to enter the king's chambers without being killed. Just that same night that Haman wants to hang Mordechai, Mordechai it, the king remembers he never rewarded Mordechai. All of these things fall into place so beautifully that when you put them all together, there's no way to understand it except it's a miracle. It, it, when something is so unlikely and it still happens, then it's nothing short of a miracle. But what we've learned throughout this, this class is that it's not just the major events, but there are so many individual tiny events, little events that the McGill is hinting to us, pointing out to us, that come together, that, that precipitate each of these individual main events. So we, we start with Achashverosh, and he's making a party in Shushan. And why is he in Shushan in the first place? So according to the Vilna Gaon, it was because he had commissioned a throne to be built there, and that throne couldn't be moved. So he's like, okay, I'll make my capital in Shushan. According to the Malbim, he was trying to show off his power. The previous capitals of the Babylonian Empire had been in Elam, I think, in other places. He moved his capital to Shushan because he wanted to show his, his absolute power. But ultimately, he really moved his capital to Shushan because that's where Mordechai was. Because Mordechai is going to play an, an, an essential role in the salvation. We can ask about all these events, like what if they hadn't happened? If this little thing didn't happen, that didn't happen, there might be no salvation for the Jews. What if he had not made his capital in Shushan? What if he hadn't made a party, right? Why did he make a party? He was either celebrating that he had made a new throne or he was celebrating the prophecy of that the, the, or that the prophecy that the Jews would rebuild the temple was not going to be fulfilled according to his calculation. He was trying to demonstrate his power Whatever it was, he made this big party, which leads to Vashti's death. What if he hadn't made the party? What if he hadn't gotten drunk? What if he hadn't, okay, that's not really a what if. Imagine he didn't, of course he got drunk. But uh, what if he hadn't summoned Vashti? What if he didn't call for her? Why did Vashti refuse anyways? So it could be she refused because she realized that Ahasuerus is trying to show off his power. What if she hadn't realized that? Others say she refused because she didn't like the messengers that he had sent. They, it was disrespectful to her. What if he had sent beggar messengers? What if he had gone himself? Maybe she would have come. If she comes, everything, the whole story is different. I have a question. Yes. How long did this king live after all this took place? It's a good question. I don't 
No, I'm not sure. Not so long, I think. His son, Daryavish, is going to take over. Um, we'll talk about Daryavish shortly, actually. I don't know the years exactly, but it wasn't too long. Is this proven? I mean, the whole st- how much of the story is proven factual? I, I mean, mean, other than the fact that the tombs exist over there. Right. So, I mean, proving is from the books that we have and mm-hmm. from tradition. That's, okay. that's what we have. Um, so there's truth in it, but even though... Rabbi Shaps? Yes. Could I just say a word in answer to that last question briefly? Please. But you, yeah. I had a friend who was Iranian who was knowledgeable about Persian history. He once sat down and told me the Persian history of this time. It was Marduk. He pronounced Ahasuerus' name. I can't pronounce it the way he did. There was Astari. That was Esther, which means morning star or evening star. And there was Haman. And he had the whole story, the same way as in the Megillah. He's not a Jewish guy. And he referred to Esther as out. Uh, over just timed out. So that's some evidence that it's, that's some evidence. Okay, great. Thank you. So just continuing the story. So um, sorry. Um, Right, so what if she hadn't refused to come and he didn't and he didn't depose her? Remember what he didn't even want to get rid of her. He was trying to bring the judges that would judge favorably. Memuchan or Haman recommended getting rid of her. What if he had never intervened to get rid of her? Or what if they didn't listen to him when he did intervene? The king then issues a decree that every man should rule in his household. The Talmud says, if not for that decree, then the Jewish people would have been wiped out much earlier. As soon as the as soon as the decree was issued to wipe out the Jewish people, they would have gone forth and done it because they why wait till the 13th of Adar? But because he had sent out this very strange decree previously, they were kind of like, I don't know, you know, if we should listen to to the decree of the king. They weren't sure. They didn't rush. What if he had never sent that strange decree that every man should rule in his household? They search for a new queen. Esther is chosen. Esther tries her hardest not to be chosen. She's, she's still chosen. Esther doesn't reveal her identity. What if she had revealed her identity? We learned, I think last week we said, that Haman probably would have changed his whole plan if he knew that Esther was Jewish. He only, he, he, didn't, he, he didn't prepare for the possibility that the queen was Jewish. And that was ultimately his undoing because he was trying to kill the queen. If, he had, if, if she had revealed her identity, everything would have been different. Esther also, they don't know her identity. She just blends in. Everybody thinks that she's from their nation. Mordechai saves the king's life. Two loyal guards get angry at the king. Why are they getting angry at the king? He's been, this was right after he like made a party and he lowered taxes. It's not really the time to get angry at the king, yet they get angry. And they want to kill him. What if they would have realized how foolish it was to kill the king and they hadn't tried? What if Mordechai hadn't overheard them planning to kill the king? What if he, they, it couldn't be proven that they were trying to kill the king? Esther reports to the king in the name of Mordechai. What if Esther hadn't even hadn't told it over in the name of Mordechai? And they didn't know that Mordechai had saved the king. Mordechai never would have been rewarded on that day. Haman wouldn't have been trying to kill the guy who saved the king because they wouldn't have known that Mordechai saved the king. What if they had rewarded Mordechai right then? That would have been it. There would have been no uh, story later involving Mordechai and riding on a horse. Haman casts lots to determine when to wipe out the Jews. It comes out about as far out as possible that the lots could come out. He's doing this in Nisan. It comes out in the 12th month of Adar about as far out as possible, um, giving the Jews time to prepare for that day. He doesn't reveal, according to the Malbim, which nation he wants to destroy, which actually, according to that, was his, lent itself to the, a new decree being able to be put out there. Oh, it didn't mean destroy the Jews. It meant destroy the Jews' enemies. Only because of Haman's plan, he didn't want to reveal who he was trying to destroy so they wouldn't have time to prepare themselves or run away. But it came back to 
ruin his plan because that gave that that meant that they could reinterpret what was in the document. Mordechai finds out about Haman's plot and he rallies the Jews to do teshuva, to repent. What if he didn't learn about the plot? Esther risks her life, enters the king's chamber uninvited. What if he didn't, she didn't find favor in the king's eyes? The fact that she found favor, she got to the king. Nobody stopped her before she got there. He was there. If he wasn't there, you know, the, the guards might have said, sorry, you tried to come without permission. We're going to have you killed. Esther, for many reasons, decides not to ask the king right then to save the Jews. That also plays itself out beautifully because then they realize that Mordechai saved the king's life and Haman's trying to kill the guy who killed, saved the king's life. Everything falls into place as a result of that. Haman builds a gallows for Mordechai the same day, the same night that, he's, that the king realizes that Mordechai saved his life and needs to be rewarded. What if he hadn't built the gallows for Mordechai? Would Haman have been killed? What if it, they couldn't see the gallows from the king's palace? Would Haman have been killed? It might have delayed his execution. He might have gotten out of it. Charvona, the messenger, knows that Haman had built the gallows for Mordechai. How does he know? He heard Haman saying it. What if he didn't hear? Haman's face is covered when the king gets angry at him. What if they didn't cover his face? He might have been able to explain himself. Where does the authority to hang Haman on the spot come from? When it came to Vashti, Ahasuerus had to consult with his advisors before having her killed. But when it comes to Haman, he can just have her killed. That's because Mamuchan Haman had given him that power way back all those years ago at the feast. So all these things fall into, fall into place miraculously. And, uh, and this is how the world is. We don't always realize how so many things fit together, but we have a fundamental belief that God runs the world. God is arranging things. Everything that happens is for a purpose and an ultimate good. And though we don't understand, they didn't understand either. They were confused. It says the city of Shushan was confused. They were confused. What's going on? Esther did not want to be queen. She doesn't know why this is happening to her. For five years, she's in the palace. She doesn't know why all this is, is happening. And, uh, and in the end, it becomes clear. Now, it doesn't always become clear for us, but the Megillah gives us a glimpse into when sometimes we can see how everything fits together. But I want to close with just another amazing idea that uh, it's not just about the story of the Megillah within itself, but it's also how this story fits into where we were in history and where we were about to be at that point. So we read the verse that back in chapter, um, in chapter eight, verse 15, it says, and Mordechai left the king's presence with royal raiment, blue and white, and a huge golden crown, and a wrap of linen and purple, and the city of Shushan shouted and rejoiced. Mordechai goes out in royal garments. He's been, a, a, he's been uh, elevated to this royal position. The, the last verse of the Megillah, going back to chapter 10, it says that he was great among the Jews and accepted by most of his brethren. Most, not all, not everyone accepted him. The Talmud says that the rabbis of the Sanhedrin actually separated themselves from Mordechai. They weren't so happy with Mordechai's behavior or his current position. He was kind of, you know, he had become this big shot in the government. So why did Mordechai do that? Was he looking for power? Was he looking to be you know, this guy in the fancy robes. Mordechai was one of the leaders of the Jewish people, the leader of the Jewish people. So why did he do that? So Rabbi Yonasang Ivshitz shares with us an incredible idea. There are three commandments that we have when we come to the land of Israel. And they're to be done in order. Number one, to appoint a king. Number two, to wipe out Amalek. 
And number three, after we've wiped out Amalek, then we're to build the temple. And that's how it played out after the Jewish people came to, came to Israel, conquered the land of Israel. Eventually, they appoint a king, King Shaul. Shaul is commanded to wipe out Amalek. He almost does, but enough that Amalek is weakened. And then King David and King Solomon, King Shlomo build, really King, King David prepares it, King Shlomo builds the temple. Fast forward, the temple's been destroyed, and now they want to build it again. They actually start building it. Ahasuerus actually puts a stop to it, maybe on the advice of Ashti, but they are not able to build the temple. Says Rabbi Yonasang Ayvshitz, they couldn't build the temple because Amalek was too strong at that time. Haman was from the, the nation of Amalek. Amalek was too strong. They couldn't build the temple. They couldn't wipe out Amalek because they didn't have a king. Mordechai had to make himself into the king of the Jewish people. That's why he accepts this position of power. That's why he goes out in the royal garments. Because now the Jewish people have, so to speak, a king. And only once they have a king will they be successful in wiping out Amalek. And once they wipe out Amalek, they can then go and build the temple, build the base of Mikdash. Now, that's why Mordechai goes out as a king. Now, we mentioned, let's ask one more question. You know, God's running things. Why can't, why didn't God have it that, that Ahasuerus rescinded his original decree? Rescind the original decree that the Jews are to be wiped out. And working out somehow. Why do you have to be that, no, the enemies are able to attack the Jews, the Jews are able to attack the enemies. As we mentioned, says the Hassam Sofer, Ramosha Sofer, who are the people that are going to come out to fight? The Jews are so powerful. They're backed by the Persian army. Who is going to actually come and fight them? Only the people who hate them the most. Only the people of Amalek. And in fact, the Targum, one of the translations, says that when all those people that were killed were from Amalek. It could be that they weren't, weren't even identifiable. It could be they didn't even know themselves that they were from Amalek, for all we know, at that point in time. But if they hated the Jews that much that they came out and fought, then they were from Amalek. And in order to build the temple, Amalek had to be wiped out. So it was to the benefit of the Jewish people that the enemies were given the ability to fight. That way, Amalek would rise up and they'd be able to wipe out Amalek, or at least diminish their power greatly enough that they can now build the temple. And finally, we come back to the taxes. Why is it significant that Ahasuerus raised the taxes at the end of the Megillah? So I, I failed to put this on the source sheet, but I'll share my screen to show you the verses in the book of Ezra. They are now rebuilding the temple, they're rebuilding the temple. And in chapter eight, sorry, chapter six of the book of Ezra, verse six, Ezra, um, the king, Daryavesh, the king of Persia, the son of Ahasuerus, says, now Tatanai, he speaks to the governor, who's the, the Persian governor over Israel. Now Tatanai, the governor of the other side of the river, Shesar, Bozni, and their companies, Etc. Leave the work of this house of God to the governors of the Jews and to the elders of the Jews. I command this house of God they shall build in its place. Let them build the temple. And for me shall be issued an order regarding what you shall do with these elders of the Jews to build this house of God. And from the king's property, from the taxes of the other side of the river, it shall quickly be built. The expenses shall be given to these men so that they should not be disrupted. And what they require, and young bulls and rams and lambs for burnt offerings to the God of the heavens, wheat, salt, wine, and oil, according to the statement of the priests who are in Jerusalem, let it be given them to the, the daily without delay. The Jewish people come back from exile. They're poor. They have nothing. How are they going to build the temple? It's going to be funded by the Persian Empire, by Daryavish. It's explicit in the book of Ezra. Not only is the building of the temple funded by him, the, the avoda, the service, he's going to provide the animals, the oils, everything. So now we understand, this I heard from Rabbi Daniel Gladstein, we understand the significance of those taxes. 
Those taxes are going to fund the building of the base on Mikdash of the temple. So how ironic. Achashverosh, who made a party to celebrate that the base on Mikdash, the temple, would never be rebuilt, is the one who is fundraising to build the base on Mikdash. And it all comes together so beautifully. The Jewish people have a leader, a king, Mordechai. They're able to destroy Amalek. And then they're able to go on to, to build the, the temple with whose money? With the money raised by Ahasuerus. So it's not just within the story itself that this led to that and that led to that and everything worked out in the end fine and the story is over. No, no, no. In its placing history, this whole story is so significant as it actually leads to the building of the second temple. It gives all the pieces necessary for the second temple to now be rebuilt. And that is something that only from God's perspective, you know, we can never recognize where all these events in history, we don't understand them. We don't understand and we can't, but God has a plan for the world. And the story of the Megillah helps us recognize that on an individual basis, the small acts and how everything fits into history we can understand God is guiding events, and that is the lesson that we are to take away from reading the Megillah. We'll stop there. Thank you, Thank you so much. Thank you.